the angry tenor. Hello, I'm your host, John Sayers, and I am the angry tenor. I have been doing the podcast now for a little while, and I think I'm starting to get the hang of it. At least I hope so. I just wanted to remind you that new episodes go live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. That's every Monday evening at 7 p.m., new episodes of The Angry Tenor. A worldwide holiday of sorts arrives this year on November 19th at 12.01 a.m. And that is Beaujolais Nouveau Day. In France, it is almost a national holiday. And other countries follow France in celebrating the release of this very special wine. It was and is a day that I look forward to every year. The region of Beaujolais is a swath of fertile hills 34 miles north to south and between 7 and 9 miles wide. The area's 2,300 farmers produce several grape varieties, but only one, the Gamay grape, is permitted in Beaujolais Nouveau. The unlikely rise to fame of a tepid and unimposing wine could be one of the most heartening stories in the world of noble French wines. For Beaujolais Nouveau, the fruity pinkish red wine of eastern France has gone from cheap plonk to superstar. Now that plonk is not my word, I just stole that word someplace or another. But it's still, it's a superstar and it is still cheap. And every third Thursday in November, Millions of French are driven into revelry the very second the new vintage is released at 12.01 a.m. local time. That is the time that it is legal to release the wine, according to the region of Beaujolais. Now, as the name implies, Beaujolais Nouveau is new, young that is, and goes to the bottle not even two months after being crushed. The wine was traditionally just a guzzler for the table and something with which to celebrate the end of the exhausting harvest season. But over time, the wine's release became an anticipated event, and the wine itself, though still not considered a stunner, is a cause for celebration. In the 1950s, distributors began competing each year in a race to deliver the first bottles to Paris. In the 1970s, winemaker and businessman George Deboeuf a major producer of Beaujolais Nouveau, pushed and publicized the wine and associated festivities, proclaiming Le Beaujolais Nouveau est arrivé, became commonplace, and the race from Beaujolais to Paris attracted increasing media coverage each year. People around the world would soon acquire a taste for the wine, 
and anticipate the day of arrival each fall. Today, Beaujolais Nouveau is a star, and the day of its release, one of the biggest parties of the year. For 34 years, starting in 1951, November 15th was the official release date, but in 1985, the Beaujolais regional government decided that the big day always would be a Thursday. And though it may be just a coincidence, Beaujolais Nouveau's arrival just a week prior to Thanksgiving has given American marketers something to bang over the heads of their consumers, specifically that Beaujolais Nouveau is a superb match for Turkey. I don't think so. So how did such a tale of success and triumph happen to carry a moderately good red wine at best into the heights of world fame? First of all, people like to drink. <laughs> and that may say it all. Beaujolais Nouveau is generally cheap, 10 bucks and less, and is available from scores of companies. And more than half of Beaujolais Nouveau is consumed in France. Japan is the world's largest importer of Beaujolais Nouveau, Germany is the second, and the United States is third. A votre santé, Sumvol, cheers. Et sur un poème des noirs au cours et sur une musique de Marcel Leguet, Yvonne Darle, accompagnée à la guitare par Marcel Noblat, vous chante le bleu des bleuets. In the heart of Montmartre, at the top of a long set of stairs in Paris, sits a tiny Montmartre country house that has been the residence of a cabaret for more than 150 years. The small main room is dimly lit with red lampshades, its dark walls covered with old paintings and drawings, and the ancient wooden tables and benches hold only about 60 people. There is a piano, but no stage. The performers sit at the table in the center of the room where they stand and sing their songs and play their instruments. One hears everything from Edith Piaf songs to piano and accordion accompanied poetry. The performer's table starts the songs and invites everyone to join in. If you want to peek into old Montmartre, this is the place to come. And the place is the O Le Pan Agile. The cabaret and bar opened its doors in 1860 under the name of A Rendezvous Les Voleurs, or the Rendezvous of Thieves. Montmartre was a bit of a seedy area at this time in history, and so it doesn't surprise me that there was a bar named for the thieves that used to hang around there. Twenty years later, the name changed to Cabaret des Assassins. There are a few different rumors as to why Alapan Agile was named for assassins, 
One version cites that it was because the walls were covered with paintings and portraits depicting famous murderers. Another version tells the tale of a group of assassins who broke into the bar to rob the place and ended up killing the owner's son in process. One thing I can tell you for sure is the cabaret gets its current name from a sign which was painted by the artist André Gil in 1875. The sign features a rabbit with a top hat jumping out of a large pan holding a bottle of wine, all with the greatest of ease. Once the cabaret debuted the sign, many Montmartre residents began to call the place Gil's Rabbit, or Le Lapin à Gil. This quickly morphed into a Lapin à Gil, or the Nimble Rabbit. may not know, Montmartre was the stomping grounds for artists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Rent was cheap, there was ample space for studios, and who wouldn't want to be surrounded by other artists in order to gain inspiration? Heavyweights such as Pablo Picasso, Amadeo Modigliani, Vincent van Gogh, and Maurice Utrillo were all known to spend quite a few evenings in Au Lapin Agile, mostly discussing the meaning of art but probably drinking a lot in the process. The artists were joined by other Montmartre residents, some down on their luck. Uh, drinks were cheap there, and even gangsters and pimps were known to come to the bar to enjoy a few. Not only did artists hang out at La Le Pan Agile, they also produced paintings showcasing the locale. Picasso's is probably the most famous, bearing the fitting name Au Le Pan Agile. In 1905, Picasso presented the Le Pan Agile owner with one of his paintings, not the aforementioned one. It hung at the Le Pan Agile until 1912, when the owner sold it for approximately $20. Incredibly, this very same painting was then sold at Sotheby's in 1989 for the incredible sum of $41 million. American actor, comedian, and playwright Steve Martin penned a show called Picasso at the La Pan Agile in 1993. The story is a what-if tale of Picasso and scientist Albert Einstein meeting at the cabaret. Today, Au La Pan Agile continues to celebrate French music. The cabaret boasts that it is a conservatory of French song, talented artists, authors, and composers. English speakers are welcome, but it is recommended that you understand a bit of French as the shows are done completely en français. But if you don't, music is an international language and you will enjoy yourself immensely all the same. The bar tends to become very crowded as it is famous for Parisians and tourists alike and a reservation is definitely recommended. The show begins at 9 p.m. and goes until 2 a.m., but be sure you eat first because there is no kitchen only a bar, and only the special homemade cherry wine. Mm-hmm. 
When speaking of Parisian cabaret, one must not forget the most famous of them all, the Moulin Rouge, first established at the foot of Montmartre 120 years ago. The Moulin Rouge went through several periods of transformation from cabaret to theater and from cinema to music hall with dancers popping out of cakes. Moulin Rouge is a living legend that was built over decades. It was founded in 1889 by Joseph Aller and Charles Zidler. Its founders wanted to create a place dedicated to entertainment for a diverse public, and the fact that it was located in Paris's 18th district, a fashionable but still quite rural area at the time, it allowed the cabaret to quickly acquire a solid reputation that would in turn inspire international artists like Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and Auguste Renoir. Des yeux qui font baisser les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche, voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en At the beginning, the Moulin Rouge would throw champagne-filled parties during which famous dancers performed. It was also during this time that the world-famous French Can-Can was born. With an unconventional architectural style and extravagant decoration, including an elephant in the garden, the Moulin Rouge was more than adept at attracting clients who simply wanted to have fun. But ten years after a disastrous fire in 1915 that would destroy the Moulin Rouge, the theater was rebuilt. Its 1,500 seats were turned into a dance club during the Second World War, a time when the Moulin Rouge was much less prosperous, regardless of performances by Edith Piaf and Yves Montand. The Moulin Rouge underwent renovation in the 1950s. In 1951, Georges France, proponent of the cabaret's new look, and Vincent Auriol, former president of the French Republic, would inaugurate a new and improved cabaret. Indeed, France's goal was to reclaim the cabaret soul, a place where people had a good time and could enjoy amazing shows performed by talented artists. Shows called Reviews were divided into several scenes that are watched while dining. The show's 80 artists retraced the Moulin Rouge's history night after night. An evening at the cabaret must be reserved in advance, and in fact, you'll find about the only way to get to the Moulin Rouge today is with a tour group, but you'll realize it was worth the effort and worth the wait as soon as you step into a splendid room where so many artists performed. Now, one question is, why is there a windmill on the Moulin Rouge? Well, while the exact reason is not crystal clear, historians believe that the windmill is an homage to Montmartre, 
The iconic windmill gives a glimpse into the otherworldly pass of Paris, where Montmartre was once a tiny village full of windmills. Almost unbelievably, there once were around 15 windmills on the Montmartre boot, used to grind wheat, press grapes, and materials for factories. The windmills were later converted into drinking establishments before they were eventually torn down. There are two remaining windmills in Montmartre today. Unfortunately, the windmill that we see atop the Moulin Rouge today isn't the one that was erected in 1889. After the fire ravaged the original Moulin Rouge in 1915, only the facade and a portion of the stage remained standing. The cabaret was rebuilt and the windmill re-established atop the facade. But here is a fact. Moulin Rouge dancers aren't all female. The iconic image of a Moulin Rouge dancer is a slim, graceful figure of a beautiful, leg-kicking woman. But what not many people realize is that the Moulin Rouge actually auditions for male dancers also. Is cabaret music still alive in Paris? I would say yes. Madame Arthur de Paul de Coq. Madame Arthur est une femme qui fit parler, 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 parler d'elle longtemps. Sans journaux, sans rien, sans réclame, elle eut une foule d'amour. The Moulin Rouge offers the glamour of a past that included many artists and raconteurs, but the show has gone, or maybe always was, touristy. The true cabaret of Paris's past is found at the La Pont-Agile. I had a conversation with its current owner when I was there a few years ago, and he assured me it was secure, but he could not say for how long. That this may be the last cabaret remaining in Paris, if not the world, is what makes me angry. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder... The Angry Tenor goes live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Now, I would like to hear from you, so if you would send your comments to heldentenore at att.net. That's heldentenore at att.net. Let me know in your email if you would like to have this broadcast on the podcast, and I'll do it. If not, I won't. So, I'm John Sayers, and I am the Angry Tenor. Hey!